Welcome back to the Out of the Main Book Club. Another book club. Yeah, so apparently you've been doing more book learning over there, huh? I, uh, I learned to read. Ah, good. That should come in handy. <laughs> now you can start writing the show notes. I didn't say I could write. <laughs> oh, okay, good. That's the third R. No, yeah. that's arithmetic. Anyways, back to book learning. So yeah. uh, you are reading, or have completed yes. reading, the Ted Templeman book, right? Right. And uh, maybe before we dive in, the book, by the way, is called A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, Mm -hmm. focused on Ted Templeman. But obviously, we're going to get into great detail. But just for those who maybe aren't even familiar with the name, just give us a frame of reference to who Ted Templeman is and why they should care. Well, it's kind of funny because one of the thoughts I had was that as we are doing a focus, we've done artist focus before, and now we're doing a producer focus. And if you'd told me a few months ago, we we're going to do a producer focus, I was would have been sure to tell you at the time it would be Graydon mm-hmm. uh, or David Foster or somebody like that. Yep. And uh, maybe even Quincy Jones, I suppose. But um, I, it, it turns out it's really fitting that we're looking at Ted Templeman first. Now, Ted Templeman... Probably in the yacht world, his biggest thing would be the Doobie Brothers uh, production. Nicolette Larson, Carly Simon, or mm-hmm. others that he worked with. Uh, but he defined a lot of the sound. If we were to say that yacht rock is defined in a lot of ways by the Doobie Bounce, wait till I get to the story about the Doobie Bounce. Yes, Because sure. the Doobie Bounce is directly referencing what a fool believes. And I will leave that teaser there until we get to it. Hmm. But cool. Ted is the man. He also produced uh, other, you know, like Van Halen, obviously, was his other big one, Honeymoon Suite, Aerosmith. So he's done some rock and stuff, too. And yeah. I had a strange or let's say an incorrect perception of Ted. Before I knew about Ted, I had seen his name on, as I said, Doobie Brothers and Van Halen. And um, I guess for some reason, uh, connecting the dots, I always thought that he was a uh, staff producer quote which he was mm-hmm. and he was an executive but that made me think that it's almost like you're assigned a band you know we well we signed this band this rock band they're going to be at the studio you want you to go produce them and that's you not know. the case no and that's not the case at all i don't know if that even does happen but it just felt like because the artist that he did seemed so different that it was probably a case of you know and, and then he would work with that same artist throughout their career Mm-hmm. That it made me think, well, maybe he was just assigned them. He didn't necessarily cultivate or have a relationship other than he was put in charge of their records. Well, right. that wasn't true. Well, did he produce both eras of Doobie Brothers as well? Yes. Interesting. Yes, he so he was able to change the sound with the arrival of Michael McDonald and everything he brought. Yes. Yeah. And that that's an amazing thing in and of itself. Well, maybe we should start more at the beginning because okay. I... Would not even even known who Ted Templeman was probably more than a year ago. Um, I didn't. I just don't follow producers the way you do. But, right. So start with um, as appropriate in the book. Obviously, you're not going to cover the whole thing, but no. um, some maybe pre Doobie Brothers factoids and history, so we can kind of f- see the rise of Ted Templeman. Well, Ted Templeman, before he was a producer and before he was a record executive, he actually was a successful recording artist. Hmm. He played uh, drums, percussion, uh, guitar. And he actually was in a group that had a big, big hit back in the, I guess it'd be late 60s. Uh, The name of the group, I don't know if you were ever familiar with Harper's Bazaar. I kind of was not. The name was somewhat familiar. I thought it was a magazine. Well, it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they just kind of re, yeah, gotcha. re- repurposed and respelled the name. But uh, they had a big hit, went number 13 
So we're talking a big enough hit that went to number 13. Do you remember the um, 59th Street Bridge song? Uh, Also known as Feeling Groovy. Ooh, I do do know Feeling Groovy. It was a Simon and Garfunkel tune, but here's the one that made it a hit, and that is by Harper's Bazaar. Check this out. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. I never knew that existed other than the Simon and Garfunkel. I know. And it's kind of bubblegummy, and it's thick with harmonies, and that comes yeah. into play later. But that was, uh, you know, they, they toured on that, and he made a lot of money off of that. So here was, uh, you know, an early success, and then it kind of, they couldn't really follow it up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it sort of dried up for him. And so here you were s- approaching the top of the pack yeah. as a... Uh, an artist, and then it dries up, and what do you do now? And so was he in, like, in the band? He's not, like, a session guy? No, he was in the band. In the band. Okay, so then what happens? Well, he, uh, as you said, the band kind of broke up, and he always still had this desire to be involved in music one way or another. And he was willing to sort of do whatever it took to be a part of the music industry and uh he approached a lot of labels looking for any sort of job you know whether mm-hmm. it was tape operator or whatever and eventually he became friends with uh lenny warrenker who was a big time executive at warner brothers maybe at the time they met he wasn't but lenny became just mm-hmm. i mean the, he was the heart and soul of the sort of the artist development and stuff at warner brothers mm-hmm. And he got to know Lenny. And, um, you know, a little bit about Lenny here. Uh, he was a producer himself. And he mentored Ted. And, and Lenny's credits, I mean, he did Jan and Dean. He did The Ventures, you know, so he was heavy into that uh, surf scene. Did The Chipmunks. Like Elvin Simon and Theater? I guess so. <laughs> and <laughs> Julie London, you know, some sultry sort of jazz stuff. Yeah. So, you know, he had a, a very wide range of stuff. And uh, he kind of took... Ted under his wing and kind of brought him around Warner Brothers and uh, allowed him to hang out and even got him some gigs mm-hmm. playing like percussion and tambourines and things like that. Um, brought him in on the, on the uh, Nancy Sinatra sessions. Mm. So when she was cutting, you know, these boots are made yeah. for walking, Ted's in there on percussion. And so, you know, he just kind of had him around and um, eventually they offer Ted a job. Well, let's say Ted offers himself up to a job, kind of I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. And they give him what was considered a real grunt job, which was, uh, I forget what the name of the, what the term was for it, tape harvesting or something like that, which essentially meant you go through the mountains and mountains of demos that get dropped off at Warner Brothers every single day and you have to listen to them day and night. (laughs) I made 50 bucks a week doing this. 50 bucks a week. And if anything was remotely together, you were supposed to then bring it up the chain of command. Okay. So that was his job. He imagined the laborious nature of Oh, sitting. imagine how much crap you had to listen to. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but meanwhile, he, you know, he took the job seriously. I mean, Ted is a very organized, driven guy. And so he took the job seriously and also felt that part of that was to sort of keep his ear to the ground and mm-hmm. go to clubs, find out who's playing where, when. Uh, and he got wind of an act that was playing at a bar and... They weren't a music act, but they were a comedy act. And so he took uh, some buddies up and said, well, let's go check out this group that's doing this gig, Cheech and Chong. Oh, oh, (laughs) you're waiting. So he's there checking out the Cheech and Chong act. And 
uh, is floored by them. Groovy. Would lo- wants to sign them, you know, but he doesn't. Does he have the power. power to do he so? No, he doesn't have the uh. power yet. So um, he kind of talks to them and sort of puts them on hold and says, you know, I want to get somebody to talk to you and sign you. Well, by the time all of this happens, Columbia already comes in and mm. signs Cheech and Chong. So he misses out. So that but his eye for smoke, talent huh? was spot on. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Tommy was an awesome drummer with those huge drumsticks, remember, in Hop and Smoke? <laughs> uh, anyways, nice. I digress. So one of the um, tapes that he gets as he's sifting through is dropped off by an engineer from a small local studio, and it was uh, the song Nobody by the Doobie Brothers. And this was an early, early demo, but it pricked his ear, and he checked out the rest of the demo and kind of said, all right, well, I'm going to move this one up the chain, and gave it to Lenny and said, here, check this out. And they find out where the Doobie Brothers are playing, mm-hmm. and they go to check that out. And of course, you know, the Doobie Brothers, as you know, back then were the biker band. Yeah. And what you got to know about Ted is that he was, um, how do we say... White as rice and as preppy as, you know, a hoi polloi can be, right? Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was very much like a preppy guy. All right. So uh, eventually he lets his hair grow out. But early on, he said it was short, it was blonde, and here he is showing up, skinny little kid in a, <laughs> like a, I picture him with like a button-down shirt with a little sweater vest over the top <laughs> of it <laughs> going in. That would get a hoi polloi from you. Yeah. So, um he goes and sees them several times with Lenny, and eventually he and Lenny go and they get the to the Warner Brass and um, convince them to to sign him. And the executives there say, "Well, you guys have scouted these guys. You know them. You guys should produce them." Wow. So Ted's like, "Oh, okay." And he's working with his buddy Lenny. So this is going to be great, right? Does he have that much experience at all at this point, like engineering or producing? No, but I or? guess they assume that Lenny, you know, would be okay. in charge of that, right? right? Um, so here they are. They're going to produce some early demos and work towards the uh, the purpose of getting the first album out, which mm-hmm. um, it, it ran into some problems because they used the original studio and the original engineer that brought him the demo in the first place because they you know, didn't have anything else to sort of fall back on. And um, turns out that they weren't really thrilled with the sound quality. The album did okay, but it was kind of, uh, it kind of fell flat, mm-hmm. you know. So this is, it's seeing the light of day and it falls flat commercially? Falls well, flat commercially and both Ted and Lenny weren't really happy with the way it okay. sounded. So uh, that was sort of a, a lesson learned, you know, that um, there's a couple lessons that Ted learns along the way. So... That was a big one, is it always work with an engineer and in a studio that is of your liking, right? Mm-hmm. But he manages to cultivate this into producing Van Morrison, of all people, Tupelo Honey. That's a big which record. Is, yeah, big time record. Yep. Um, he eventually uh, starts working with Little Feet, as we know. So by working with um, these guys, you know, getting to know... The musicians that were in the Doobie Brothers, even though they weren't known acts and they were very, you know, good musicians. And mm-hmm. then you got the Little Feet guys. He's starting to build this little kind of clique of musicians that he can rely on. Uh-huh. So what we know now, you know, that Ted uses all these guys. But back then, this is where he, just, he starts to sort of build this group. Yeah. You know, while he was working with Van Morrison on Tupelo Honey, you know, Van was a very um, brash 
Scott. You know, they always was looking to get into a fight. You know, the idea of <laughs> being a Scott and going to the pub was you couldn't leave until you had a fight. Right. Um, but he was kind of could be an overbearing personality at times, and other times he would just go into la la land and you know not speak for days. It's just kind of mm-hmm. kind of weird. But um, the one thing that Ted did when he did Tupelo Honey with Van Morrison, they co-produced that as well as co-producing the first Doobie Brothers with Lenny. Uh, he he learned that rule number one: I don't want to co-produce. Rule number two: When I'm mixing. It's me and the engineer. The band members do not get to be yeah. a part of it because Van Morrison was difficult in terms of the mix. Yeah, so, turn up the vocals. So I mean, yeah, turn, 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 yeah, turn everything I played. I count, up, yeah. Right? So those are the two rules: no co-producers and no artists in the room during the mix. I think those are good rules. <sighs> but Doobie Brothers asked him back to produce the second album. And back then, it was, who told us this? The guys at the Firefall, I think, told us that back then, the idea was you were going to invest in an artist for the long arc. Yeah. Like, even if the first two albums didn't succeed. Right. They were building a, a artist's repertoire, as they say, so that by the third, fourth, fifth album, you've got something that's really got a following now, which they don't do anymore. They would never be that patient. So, they go back to the well. Well, going back to that, Warner Brothers was known at the time as a label that uh, nurtured artists, and particularly Lenny Warrenker. That was his his credibility with musicians drew from the fact that he was a believer that the music had to happen first before the money, and he was a big believer hmm. in cultivating that. God. So, going back to why I said he was kind of the heart and souls because that was you know his belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's. We're going to look at Toulouse Street really quick. You know, this starting into the, what, proto-yacht, pre-yacht area. And so Toulouse Street, as we know, starts the ball rolling big time for the Doobies. I mean, some big hits on that. We had Rocking Down the Highway, Jesus is Just All Right With Me, uh, Listen to the Music. Just, mm-hmm. you know, great stuff. But they sold a ton of these records, put them on the map, put a big tour together. Um, but Ted is, you know, just starting to learn what he's doing and he's starting to really get the magic in the studio. So I wanted to point out, he came up with a great sound for, uh, and you maybe even mentioned this once way back, the guitar part, the intro of Listen to the Music. We're going to check that out, but listen to this. He, what he did was he layered three different things. Tommy Johnston, guitar player, is playing the rhythm, but he wanted to do it on an electric. And Ted had the idea, well, let's mic We'll put a mic in front of the strings on the electric, hmm. but also take the direct feed from the electric into the board. No amp. That's We're going to cool. take that sound, and then we layer that with another electric through an amp, and then another acoustic. And wow. layer those, essentially, four things together. And that's the sound of Listen to the Music. Let's check that out. It's interesting that they would mic the electric strings. Yeah, to get that chiminess. Yeah, you get that chiminess. Yeah. That's cool. So we move on. The next album that he does with them is called The Captain and Me. And now you've had a hit album. How do you follow that up? And they did quite well, right? So Long Train Running. That, that was actually, actually the song right. that I had referred to before because I you hear that that counterpart was the what counterpart, you were pointing yes, which yeah. sounds like it could be off of Christopher Cross album, which is until I heard it in phones, I never focused on. I think it's the left channel that right. little plucky. Should we play it? Yeah, let's remind phones. Yeah.
All right, so that was uh, Long Train Running. That, that, um, we had South City Midnight Lady on this album. We had China Grove on this album. Yep. Um, you know, Then the following album was called What Once Were Vices Are Now Habits. That has black water on it. I mean, so we're just talking hit after hit after hit. And um, black water, he actually credits with going back to his Harper's Bazaar days when they would do the, the bubblegummy harmonies and the call and answer and the overlapping vocals. He said that whole end section... The vocal drop was all inspired by really? the days of Harper's Bazaar. Yeah. I'd like to hear some funky Dixieland pretty mama come and take me by the hand. I want to hang take me by the hand, pretty mama come and dance with your daddy you all night long. And of course, that's where he meets up with Novi, the viola player. Yes. Who he eventually uses a bit later on in um, like some of the Nicolette Larson stuff. So he starts to connect with Novi. Was she just, did they get into how he met her? Was she just assigned kind of or tried out for the part? Or how did, how was he getting now session players? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, they didn't really cover that. I just remember, uh, they didn't even talk about Novi really in the book as much as I remember, it, okay. you know, connecting from before. Yeah. Uh, so now Stampede, the next album comes out, you know, Baxter's now in the group. So that's, that changes the dynamic a little bit, which we'll get to, but, um, you know, Stampede had a couple of hits, Take Me In Your Arms, Rock Me, Rock Me, Little While, right? Mm-hmm. I Cheat the Hangman is a, you know, massively popular deep cut. I mean, we're talking, what, three, four albums in a row now where he's generating hits. So they're, you know, big time. And now he is the sole producer, right? Cause there's no co-producers. Yeah. He'd been the sole producer all along except for that first record. Yep. Right. So he's got to be developing this awesome reputation, which I'm sure we're going to get back to is, is going to launch other opportunities. Well, he is moving up the ladder corporately, too. He's mm. now you know moving into like associate executive type of roles where uh-huh. he's in charge of other um, A&R, which is, uh, art, what is it, uh, A&R's Artists and Research? Artists and Repertoire, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he's getting involved in that. He's... Um, you know, got an executive position as well as producing these acts, and he's getting calls from other bands to produce them, and I, you know, all makes sense. But you know, the Doobie Brothers are running so fast and so hard between making an album a year and then going on tour that the inevitable is happening. You know, that mm-hmm. they're tiring out. They are mm-hmm. uh, more of them are succumbing to exhaustion and drug use. You know, mm-hmm. some more than others, and. The biggest, you know, was Tommy Johnston, the leader of the band, mm-hmm. the voice singer. of the band, yeah. and the lead writer at the time. You know, they're really the heart and soul of the band. I mean, Patrick Simmons had been there from the beginning, and, they, you know, he was an essential part, but Tommy was the driver of that bus, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's getting to a point where he can't do it anymore, and he specifically can't do this tour now following Stampede. And the tour's booked? Yeah, the tour's already booked. Oh, my God. And uh, of all people, it's Baxter, Jeff Baxter, that tells them, we need to get this guy I worked with with Steely Dan. He can come in, he can cover the vocals, and he also is a, a tremendous keyboard player because they had been using more and more keyboard stuff. So they needed a keyboard player on the tour. Uh-huh. Baxter says, let's bring in this guy named Michael McDonald. And he is, even though he's not a household name yet, he's got a really good reputation as being the session vocal guy. Right? I'm assuming he's got well, a pretty he done, good yes. resume. Yes, but, you know, how... He hadn't. How popular was? I mean, how, was, was he was probably known within the the real nerd circles. But even then, right? I mean, it's kind well, of a surprising choice given his vocal style as it relates. to That's Tommy. the thing to me. Yeah, it's like I don't see that. Obviously, it worked. I mean, Patrick Simmons can sound close to 
to Johnston, so I'm surprised that they didn't have him sing more. Now, maybe he just didn't have the um, you know, stamina to be able to do all that. I don't know. But anyway, so in comes Michael to do the tour. And the whole idea at the beginning is to do the tour. Tommy would get well. The Doobie Brothers would come back home. We'd cut the next record as the Doobie Brothers before. There was Move no forward. intention at the time that Michael was going to join the group. Well, Tommy's health does not improve. At least not fast enough. And, of course, by health, we're talking about, you know, drug use and alcohol and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So despite Ted's misgivings, he gives in to this idea that, you know, the band has to continue. And um, Patrick Simmons comes to him and actually says, man, you should hear this guy on tour. This guy. Comes to Ted? Yeah. So Patrick Simmons is now vouching for Michael McDonald. You need to hear, you know, Ted's not on the tour with them. So, you know, they get to know Michael and maybe he plays them some of his demos and all this stuff and they do jamming around. So they get a whole idea what he's capable of musically. Meanwhile, Ted's back in LA. He has no idea. Right. right? So, well, it's a little concern to him because he's got Tom Johnson coming back for the next record. That's what he thinks. Exactly. Well, Patrick is just telling him, you got to hear this guy. You got to hear this guy. So eventually he convinces Ted to come with him to go to visit Michael and meet him, hear the demos that he's got. And we've all heard the stories about how Michael was living. You know, Michael at the time had been evicted from his apartment because he stayed up all night playing his roads. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, they pay you. They yeah. pay him to keep doing it. I know. Yeah. They want him to play all night and he won't. Right. So now he's living, as they say, in a garage in LA. I don't know uh, how, what to picture that as, whether it's like a, like a buddy's they, garage. Yeah, they just say a garage. I don't know if that even or that means like a <laughs> like a warehouse or probably like a, that you know fix it up shop. But anyway, he's living there. He's got mattress on the floor. He's got a hot plate in the corner and one other item of value: his uh, Fender Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't go anywhere without that. I know. So, <sighs> what is a Michael McDonald without a Fender Rhodes? I don't know. I mean, yes, how do you carry that thing? Right. Uh, well, anyway. if you're a musician, you find a way. Yeah. Um, so Ted and uh, and Patrick Simmons go, and um, Michael, uh, he said, you know, Ted says, I'd like to hear some of the material you've got. And she's like, oh. Michael was always saying, well, I've got a couple things, but it's not really any good. So first thing he plays them is The Losing End. So let's check that one out. And Ted hears that, and he's just, you know, floored. His mouth, you know, hits the floor. <laughs> so um, he's like, I hear this guy sing, and he sounds like a combination of Marvin Gaye and Joe Cocker. <laughs> hey, you know, I could kind of see that. I can that. hear that. Yeah. And I can see that if you heard that, I can see why you see dollar signs, because yeah. that's a unique sound. And so Ted's like, you know, well, what else you got? <laughs> he said, you know, it's okay. So but, they only play that one demo? And he's he played hooked. him that. You know, he yep. sits at the roads and plays the losing end, you know. Yeah. You got anything else? Michael says, yeah, it's just okay, though. But all right, well, let's hear it. So Michael sits down and plays Taking It to the Streets. Oh. You don't know <laughs> me, but I'm your I was Smash hit. What else you got? Well, the next one he plays him is It Keeps You Running. Yeah, 
And Patrick Simmons is like looking at him like, I told you so, dude. I told you. Wow. And at the time, let's not forget how unique that sound was. I mean, now as a yacht rocker, we're totally like inundated with it and it's part of our vernacular. But that was a totally different sound back then. So can you imagine yeah. you're hearing this keyboard driven blue eye soul and you come from, you know, the Doobie Brothers past being kind of good old boy, yeah. Southern rock. And you're like, whoa, this is different. And that's the conundrum. Right yeah. there for conundrum Ted. and the opportunity. Like it's a gold mine waiting to happen, but is it us? And that's exactly I think what Ted was thinking is that how do I sell this a back to the people at Warner Brothers and b how does how do we present this to an audience because right. it is completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he have thoughts about saying you know yeah this is amazing stuff but it needs to have its own imprint its own name maybe it needs to be michael solo which you know eventually he gets to but at the time he's like okay i've got this amazing talent that fell into my lap but what do i do with it right and i just we should probably point out because you've made this point in the past but you know michael mcdonald sometimes gets quote-unquote blamed for ruining the doobie brothers like he came in he kicked out tommy johnson he's like this is my new thing now and here's all my tunes that was not the case at all no, he it was takes a, a few albums before he gets to that point. And he didn't even want to do it at he first. He didn't want to do it. He didn't really feel his material was that good. He was a very um, apprehensive about becoming a front man and, you know, being the, the, the center, the focus. And But they proceed to start building the album of uh, Taking It to the Streets. And if you notice that album, if you, you listen through that album... It's almost in every other song is a Michael song versus a song that sounds more reminiscent of early doobies. You know, because Tommy still had some stuff that they recorded before, and Patrick can still sing the rock stuff. So they would have a rockin' tune, and they would have a Michael tune. Yeah. And they were, it's like they were kind of giving it to the audience in smaller doses. But even when they were doing the album, Ted went out of his way to avoid being stuck in a situation where he had to play something for the brass at Warner because he didn't want like the promo people mostly to hear it because he knew they'd flip their lids because mm-hmm. they wouldn't they would not have any vision of what to do with this new sound. Interesting. So at what point do they learn of it? The album's done and it's in the when it's sleeves? done when it's done. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much when it's done and uh and I think they even have it out to radio stations and the radio stations start playing taking it to the streets. And it starts taking off, and then they're like, oh, now we know what Mm. to do. Well, if it's going to be commercially successful, then I guess I like it. Interesting. All right, so now they're starting to take the band in a whole new direction. But is other projects, are they starting to creep up yet? Yeah, people are starting to get wind of, obviously, the success. And because maybe they're doing this other sound, I don't know this to be true. This is just me connecting dots in my mind. Is that other artists that aren't, quote, rock artists are starting to see the potential of this in their sound. And I guess uh, first one to come to mind would be Carly Simon. Mm. You know, he produces the Another Passenger album for her and uses a lot of the Doobie Brothers, uses the Little Feet guys. So all these guys that he had gotten to know back in the day are part of this album. And in fact, they even cover uh, It Keeps You Running. It Keeps You Running and it becomes a hit. Was it a bigger hit for her than it yeah. was for... I don't know that the Doobie Brothers ever released it, did they? I don't know. That was I don't know. Was it a single? Uh, but I, I always associated their... it as a Doobie's tune. Yeah. It was on their best of the Doobies, the mm-hmm. volume one, so... Yeah. 
Um, but that might also just be in response to her having made it a hit. Right. That's so, true. Uh, but even Linda Ronstadt sings on that. And, of course, his connection with Linda Ronstadt becomes significant later on. Um, but he's still primarily focused on the doobies. He still has this problem with Tommy, still thinking that he wants Tommy to come back. And maybe now this uh, album of Taking It to the Streets shows that you can do both. You know, you can balance the rock side with the soul side, and maybe that would be the new direction. But Tommy eventually officially completely bows out of the band. Hmm. Uh, and this is as they're getting ready to record the follow-up. And so now, again, you've had an, a success out of something that you weren't sure was going to be a success. Right. Taking it to the streets. Now you got to follow that up. So they didn't do it. You could you could assume that because it was so successful, they just kicked Tommy out. But that's not the case. No. Tommy, well, unless Tommy saw the writing on the wall, uh, it doesn't really say in the book why Tommy bowed out. Okay. Um, but he did... And they start making Living on the Fault Line album, which, again, now that becomes even more Michael-heavy. And it really becomes very Baxter-heavy, because that album has got the most long, like, fusion sections, some of these crazy, sort of, almost uh, Frank Zappa type of mm. riffs. Like, check out this, how the way, the ending of uh, Living on the Fault Line... we come out of that and go right into nothing but a heartache mm. and they're just completely different yeah, right the album makes for a great listen if you're like a steely dan type fan and you like that yeah you know well what year is that now this is 1977 so is the steely dan artsy stuff out yet asia's not out yet right no i guess it's not right interesting mm-hmm. did baxter play on asia <laughs> no, no, I don't think he did by that point. I don't think so either. So. I think he was out. But he was even, in the earlier stuff. Yeah, I think he was even out by Royal Scam yeah. for the most part, because that's when Larry Carlton started to play But there's so much, this goes back to the whole L.A. scene at the time, which we talked about. There's so much incestuousness and kind of cats going here and there. There's bound to be bleed over, right? For sure. From artist to artist. For sure. You know, maybe some of that was kind of going on at that time. Yeah, I mean, Victor Feldman is heavy on this album, yep. too. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's that. It's almost like this is... Uh, a Steely Dan extended album in a lot of ways. It's yeah. It feels like to me, Steely Dan and family kind of thing. Um, there was a good story in this. Uh, he was, um, he being Ted was hanging out one night with Michael McDonald and they were just listening to music and uh, they were actually listening to Marvin Gaye and they heard this tune, Little Darling. And Michael uh, turns to Ted and says, we got to cut this. Let's cut this tune. Let's go tomorrow and go in the studio and cut <laughs> this. So they go in the next day and they start laying down tracks for this and build this song out. And by the way, just you can't go to the internet and find a chart at this time. I should make that up. Well, that's true. That's so true. it's like you're going to cut it the next day. You got to learn it by ear, maybe chart it out yourself, and then start rearranging it. That's not. Well, in the book, it talks about that Ted said he played drums. And hmm. eventually he thinks his part got replaced. But I would guess that means that he and Michael together. You know, mm-hmm. we're playing, and Michael probably had the ear to be able to figure it out, and Ted just gave him a rhythm track, and then they eventually built all around that. But he actually hired David Page of Toto really? to do a string arrangement on it huh. and a horn arrangement on it, and he was going to go full-on, like, Motown Phil Spector on this yeah, thing. Yeah, right. And he, the mistake he made was he, he let Baxter get in his ear. And Baxter was lobbying hard. He wanted to play a guitar solo in the middle. 
whereas Ted had this idea that out of the horn section was going to be the sax solo there. Producer should override. And he, he eventually said, well, okay, let's try cutting the guitar solo. His intent from the beginning was not to use it. In fact, he, he worked out a thing where um, Baxter and Patrick Simmons play sort of back and forth. And uh, so let's give that a quick listen. But his intent the whole time was to not use that Mm -hmm. and to use the strings and the horns. But he made error number two. He allowed the musicians in when he was doing the mix. Yep. And they pushed him hard and he eventually acquiesced and went with the guitar solos, completely killed the strings, completely killed the horns. So now imagine you've hired David Page to do these arrangements. You've gone through the process of booking and recording an orchestra, which maybe it's only you know, 12, 10, 12 strings, and you multi-track. But then you also do the same with the horns. So right. you've, you've spent days and money, session fees, mm-hmm. and then you're just going to kill it. Mm. What well, a shame. they release that as a single, and it maxes out at, like, number 48 or something. And Ted is, like, just kicking himself because he is convinced that had it been done the way he envisioned it, mm-hmm. it would have done better than that. He said, I'm not talking number one. But probably top twenty, you know. So he really that that stuck in his yeah. craw that he already had established that rule, and he allowed himself to break it. That's a bummer. Yeah, and they never go back and re-release uh, like because they had the tracks. You could always remix it. So, they, he talked about that later on. I think maybe possibly for Greatest Hits Volume Two, and they were going to do that, and he's like, "No, I don't want to do that." I, yeah, you know, he actually had an experience like that with. Um, Van Morrison early on, where they argued over a mix and he wanted it done his way and Van wanted it his way and Van was more established at the time. Van's version got out there. The single didn't do well. And then Van comes back to him and says, why don't we remix it and release it your way? And Ted's like, no, no, it does no. <laughs> Reminds me of when we were talking to Dane, there was, what song was it where he wanted the horns yeah. mixed higher than uh, t- uh, he wanted it? Yeah, and they weren't in there at all, I right. guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember which one I'll, that is now. I'd love to hear that. But to top it off, um, Michael got drunk one night and met Martha Reeves from Martha and the Vandellas, you know, Motown, Mm -hmm. invited her to come down and sing on the session. This is the same session? The same session. Ted walks in and there's this woman sitting on the couch there and he introduces himself, just says, no, morning, I'm Ted. Hi, I'm Martha. Goes in and gets on about his work. A couple hours later, (laughs) she comes storming in and says, I've never been treated like this in my life. I'm getting the F out of here and blah, 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 blah. Michael comes in a couple hours later, you know, after Ben on this bender and <laughs> and um, tells Ted, you know, Ted still doesn't know who this was. Right, Tell, just some... Ted tells him, he said, oh, some woman was here, some Martha, and she was waiting for you and got, and got all PO'd and stomped out. And Michael's like, oh, no, Martha Reeves. I forgot. <laughs> oh, my God. Martha Ugh. Reeves is very popular at this point. Yeah. Right? So now Ted's figured out who it was. Yes. Just by the name. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, kids, don't drink and do drugs. Okay. Yes. I should say that uh, I did skip over a little bit that 
along the way, Ted had developed a relationship with a guy named Don Landy. Don Landy is a mm. great, great recording engineer. And more than just being a great recording engineer, he saw things the way Ted saw things. He heard things the way Ted heard. They they almost were of single mind. Mm -hmm. And it made for just a a perfect relationship in the studio where Ted could concentrate on his thing and not worry about what Don had to do and vice versa. And if Ted missed something, Don would catch it. And, you know, just it, it was just a great thing. So... This long-term relationship with Don is important, too. He actually wanted to put Don on there as production credits, but Don's like, no, man, I'm when an engineer. When does that partnership you know? start? Is it with the first album? I think it started on Toulouse Street. Okay. And I don't know exactly, I don't recall exactly how that happened, but Don was a brilliant engineer, and he eventually is the one that we talked about a while back who did the the cutting of the tape for when Lukather had to put it back together. We're talking about the Eddie Van Halen putting the solo on Michael beat Jackson's it. beat it. And all. Yeah. So Don Landy, because he eventually became very involved with Van Halen through Ted Templeman. Um, but Don had, you remember how we used to, when you'd record something in the session, you'd do a mix and you'd what, burn it to cassette and mm-hmm. take yep. it out in the car and listen to it. Right. right yeah. Well, Don's like, well, forget that. I'm going to set up a shortwave system. So he sets up a shortwave radio system so he could play it from the studio and listen to it out in the car. He's like, I don't want to put it down to a cassette, a crappy sounding cassette. Right. I'm just going to send it via radio waves. And it would probably more accurately reflect what it's going to sound like over FM, right? I guess so. Yeah. That's cool. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. Good old Don. Dandy Don. So at this point... You know, Ted is uh, running strong with the Doobie Brothers. But next comes the question of uh, how do you get involved with Nicolette Larson? And I had teased that earlier. So why don't we think about taking a quick break? Ooh, how quick? Like a week's worth? Quick enough to do a lightning round. All right, let's do a lightning round. Why don't you put a pin in that? How do you solve a problem like Nicolette? We'll come back to next week. Right. Okay. And we'll take a break because I think we still got a lot to talk about here. We'll do a, we'll pause the action, pick up the conversation next week. And for now, we'll cap this section off with a lightning round. Very good. Cue the uh, sound effect. All right. Boom. All right. Well, just real quick, can I ask you on a proto yacht song how yachty you feel the song is? It's a Doobie Brothers tune. Okay. And see if, is it worthy of the boat? Is it worthy of your playlist? Okay. Um, that listen to the music. Or is that too early for you? From a yacht perspective, that's too early for me. And it's so heavy, strummy, I wouldn't put it there. But like I say, when I listen to the stuff, I usually surround my yacht stuff with some other West Coast stuff. And yep. so I would probably have it in my list. I don't know. Maybe it's not there. You also but, have, though, some other non-yachty. I do. Some of the Pre-Michael McDonald doobies. That yes, like Another Park, Another Sunday, and you know some of their more mellow And stuff. I have Long Train Running in, but I don't have Listen to the Music. It just sounds too much like uh, I'm on classic rock radio station. Yeah, I get me. that too. Yep. yep. Have you got something for Does It Float Your Boat? That was my Does It Float Your Boat, by the way. I get that. I had this one set aside, and I guess now is as good a time as any to ask it. It does not relate at all to the conversation, but... I know you don't have a, a strong opinion necessarily of Lindsey Buckingham, but what do you think about his song Trouble from a float your boat perspective? I 
So do you know off what year is that from? Is that from the yacht years? 1981. Okay. Because hmm. it sounds a little mod to me. I definitely hear some Fleetwood Mac remnants in there. Definitely. So, you know, I think I'm supposed to say it does not float my boat because it's Fleetwood Mac. Right. And I think that's what I am going to say. I don't dislike the song. Right. But I don't know if it belongs in the boat. I don't think it does either. It's probably the sort of the the smoothest West Coasty sounding to me. It's it's probably the closest one of their songs might get. I know people we've we've talked about dreams a while back mm-hmm. and maybe Gypsy and things like that, but I, mm. but I think that is as close as it gets. But I don't think it still gets there. Yeah, that's about where I'm at. Same Fleetwood with- Mac is a thing. You know that that era of Fleetwood Mac particularly. It, it's a thing. It's a sound all its own. Like certain artists are a genre of their own. Yep. You know, like Steely Dan is, mm-hmm. Chicago is, you know, at least early on. Yep. You know, it's like how do you put them into a genre? And I don't know that Fleetwood Mac. They obviously they fit in the West Coast genre, but still they're, they're kind of their own. Thing. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think they fit the yacht rock genre. So I no, mean, I don't either. I'm pretty sure. I have it on good authority that they are not. Okay. All right. Um... I got yelled at by all the right people, in other words. <laughs> all right. um, have you got something for Buried Treasures? I do. I'm going to go to 1977, and I'm a big, big fan of Lee Rittenauer's mm. Rit and Rit 2 yes. albums. And the singer on those is Eric Tagg. And Eric Tagg had a solo album himself in 1977. And because of his association with Lee Rittenauer, his voice still, you know, says Yacht Rock to me. And um, I'm going to put on our uh, list this one from 1977, Eric Tagg. It's called Living Off the Love. Living off the love that we made. And a little proto yacht disco in there. There, yeah, a little yeah, bit. A little bit. A little I think bit. it's the the uh, swooning strings. I guess. Well, it is seventy seven. So, so just before, mm-hmm. right around there, huh? Very good. good I love call. that tune though. Yep. So it's kind of like getting some fresh Lee Rittenauer when you got the Eric Tag voice in there. That's cool. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little bit shameless with my buried treasure because when we released the August Red EP. Yes. We covered a Bill of Bounty song, naturally, right? You knew that was coming. That was the worst kept secret ever. (laughs) Um, But what's surprising to me is how many people have reacted to that cover, the This Night Won't Last Forever, and said, oh my God, I totally forgot about that song. I know. A lot of people. So it's buried for a lot of people. And in case it's buried for you, don't go unbury the Michael Johnson version. Unbury the Bill of Bounty version. This Night Won't Last Forever. Good. Oh, bury them both for that matter. Yeah, you know? actually, I, yeah, I kind of did. Wait, what do you mean both? There's three now. Three. Yeah, there's three. Got to unbury the August Red version. True. All right. Fair enough. All right. Um, and then I am going to also go to something I've been seeing on the interwebs machines lately. It's so weird how I had the song picked out, I swear to God, about five weeks ago. And it's been sitting at the bottom of my list <laughs> off the map. And then it, out of the blue, it comes up and it's in constant conversation. 
So totally not suggesting this is yacht. But when I heard it, it was just one of the, one of those songs where you're like, oh my god, I totally forgot about it. <laughs> so I submit to you that maybe you could sneak into your playlist, not a yacht rock playlist, but off the map, quarter flash, harden my heart. <laughs> Oh my, that is off the map. Yes, it is. Even the sax on that one wouldn't be a very yachty sax. It's that growling thing, but it's cool. Yeah. That's a that's a cool tune. I remember that. Yep. Seemed like it was everywhere though for a while. I remember getting tired of it, but certainly It was. That's the thing is I got so tired of that song. I don't even know if I even really liked it that much to begin with, but then when I reheard it recently, I'm like, oh yeah, that brings back all the sweet feels. Anyway, uh, close us out here before we finish. All right, well, this off the map kind of connects to our uh, novelty yacht Catch of the Day radio show. Yes. Which is uh, in production currently. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the centerpieces to me of novelty music, novelty as it relates to yacht rock, is Starbuck. Oh, yeah. And, you know, obviously Moonlight Feels Right is (laughs) uh, the hit. But this is worth having in there as well. And this one's called Everybody Be Dancing. Everybody be dancing, dancing. So much more Starbuck that deserves yeah. our attention than that stupid Feels Right song. Yeah, and there's Battlestar Galactica character, too. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a super yachty show. Yes. I mean, right? space yacht. Yeah. Well, going back to yachty, think back. Let's see if listeners can remember how well they've been paying attention to this episode. Right. So picture a young Ted Templeman, the way we described him. Mm hmm. Preppy. Mm hmm. Got yeah. a sweater vest on. Yeah, and the, the like the powder blue button-down shirt underneath. Yep. Yeah. And now, dear listener, as you're listening, he walks into a party, or maybe he walks into a biker bar. What does somebody turn to him and say? Go ahead and say it out loud now. <laughs> 